Welcome to another Björkness podcast from the Björkness Center for Climate Research. I'm Stephen Outen, along with my colleague, Ingil Pilskog. Hello. In today's podcast, we'll be discussing storms and storm tracks, particularly those in the North Atlantic. Storm tracks shape the weather and climate of the mid-latitudes, and their study helps address WCRP grand challenges on weather and climate extremes, as well as on cloud circulation and climate sensitivity. In the studio to speak with us today is Camille Lee, a professor at the University of Bergen and research leader in global climate at the Björkner Center for Climate Research. Camille specializes in the study of large-scale atmospheric dynamics, atmospheric jets and storm tracks. Camille, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Stephen. So let's dive straight in. When we say storm tracks, what are we referring to? Yeah, so um, in the mid-latitudes where we live, our day-to-day weather is mainly set by the passage of storm systems, right? So we know this, something comes through, we get a lot of rain, a lot of wind, um, some cold fronts, warm fronts, and then they pass by, and then maybe a week later you get another one. So the storm tracks are these corridors where the storm systems like to travel, so you tend to find them there. And they're... They're mainly over the oceans, or they're maximum over the oceans, but uh, so one in the North Atlantic, one in the North Pacific, and then also in the Southern Hemisphere. But uh, what you find is that they also extend over land, so over Europe and over North America, and that's we're, we're kind of sitting at the tail end of the North Atlantic storm track here in Norway. So it's not actually the track of a storm. It's not tracks of individual storms, but it's actually a region where statistically you're likely to get more storms. Yeah, that's right. I guess it's actually a bit confusing because we use the term storm tracks in both ways. So it, it we would, if we follow an individual storm, we would follow the track of that storm and we could call that a storm track. But in general, when we talk about the, talk about the North Atlantic storm track, we mean the whole area, the corridor where these storms tend to go. So it is statistically where you find them the most. Does these storm tracks follow like the normal weather patterns or are they extraordinary? Uh, I guess the storm track itself, because mm. it's a statistical uh, entity, you know, I mm. would say that that's the that that would describe normal weather. So you wouldn't you would say the storm track would tell you where storms tend to go in winter or in summer or you know, mm. so that's where you would find them. Individual storms, of course, can be they can be regular or weaker than normal or stronger than normal or have higher winds than normal or have more precip than normal. So it's a bit of a mix, I guess. Now, the storm tracks you mentioned in North Atlantic, North Pacific, these are both sort of located around 45 degrees north. Um, And the storm track in the southern hemisphere is in the Indian Ocean, and that's around 50 degrees north. Why are the storm tracks always centralized around this sort of mid-latitude? So that has a lot to do with how the large-scale global atmospheric circulation is is set up. In the mid-latitudes is where we tend to find the strongest uh, gradients, north-south contrasts between, you can think of, you know, the warm air in the tropics, the cold air at the poles. Uh, You can think of it in other ways too, pressure, density. But if you think of it in in terms of temperature, that's the easiest. So you get these strong north-south contrasts, and um, that generates... uh, it's essentially the the fuel for for growing the storms for them to develop and and grow and get stronger. So you mentioned this uh, uh, temperature contrast, this sort of warm and cold. Now, of course, we've known quite a lot about how storms form and how they move. 
ever since Jacob Björkness introducing his cyclone model back in 1918. So in that sense, it's always been this idea that you have this sort of warm and cold area, you have a boundary between them, and you get some sort of disturbance, and then the cold and warm air starts moving around, it forms the fronts, it spins up the cyclone, and so on. So is that sort of cold and warm front often related between sort of polar and tropical then? Is that why it's mid-latitude? Yes, that's right. So you have the warm air masses sitting around the tropics. You have the cold air masses sitting at the poles and, and where those meet is in the mid-latitudes. Um, so you, you, you can have uh, that position where, where they meet or where the contrasts are strongest can be a little you know, further north in, in one ocean basin, a little further south in another ocean basin. But essentially you need that contrast to be able to generate and develop the storms. But uh, storms are a little more complex than just a low level at the surface disturbance in warm and cold air masses. There's also an upper level perspective to this. Yeah, that's right. So I would say that uh, one of the ingredients you need is this temperature contrast at the surface. So so you need that. But in addition, uh, you need something to kind of kick it off. So we usually think of this as upper level, upper level meaning maybe 10 kilometers above roughly 10 kilometers above the surface at the level of where the jet stream sits. So that's this uh, strong air current that runs uh, about 10 kilometers above the ground. And uh, you, you think of little disturbances in that jet stream. They happen all the time. They're, they're there all the time. They're going all the time. But once in a while, uh, if they sort of hook up to, <laughs> to um, um, the surface in a certain way, and the surface needs to have this nice temperature contrast that we already talked about, then um, you get this connection between the upper level and the surface, and you can that's when the storms really develop. So when we talk about this upper level jet stream, we mean sort of like the, the large uh, planetary size wave that you get extending around the Earth in the Northern Hemisphere in the upper levels, but there are small disturbances that travel along that larger wave. That's right. Uh, you know, in, in a very simple sense, you, you could just think of it as, as really a, a current of air, a, almost a river that's 10 kilometers above the ground sitting at the mid-latitudes and just circling the globe. And it has these, these kinks in it that are you know, semi-permanent, especially in the northern hemisphere where you have a lot of mountains and land, sea contrast as well. And where you get the uh, ridges and troughs of this, you actually get a rotation of the air. You, you get what we call vorticity, positive yes. and negative vorticity. So you're actually getting where the, where the trough occurs um, and it turns from being a southerly flow to a more northerly flow, you're actually getting a positive vorticity. And as this is advected along, that's what's really linking to this uh, low-level storm as it starts to form. Yeah, exactly. So you, you get areas where um, you would preferentially grow storms because you, have this, you already have this vorticity in the large-scale flow that helps kick everything off. Of course, that's in the northern hemisphere. The yes. southern hemisphere is a little tricky because we don't really have these as many of these big kinks yeah. um, in the flow. But you said that uh, like land features can also affect this. Like, could you give an example of uh, such land features? Yeah, sure. Uh, so one of the things that we often talk about is the effect of large mountain chains, things like the Tibetan Plateau, the Himalaya, the Rocky Mountains in North America. Mm. And what these do is they they sort of disturb the jet stream as it's flowing around 
and you'll get what Stephen already mentioned, these, these mm -hmm. kinks where you get um, the jet stream sort of meandering north and south. Yeah, so the like the Rocky Mountains, they always sort of pushes the jet stream northwards around itself. Yeah, so you'll get a kink towards the north just mm. just before upstream yeah. of, the, of the Rockies, um, so off the west coast, and then you'll get a kink to the south, what we call a trough, yeah. over North America. And this trough is where you have positive vorticity. So this is linked to what, like these polar vortices that they talked about when there was really cold in the U.S. and so on. Sort of. So, this, is, so this is really tricky. This yeah, one. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. so the polar vortex is up in the stratosphere. It's a different yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's slightly, yeah. yeah. And it, but it is. They're it's, not unconnected. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> that's maybe another branch. Yeah. Us. Right. Yeah. yeah we can, let's take that we, again. Um, yeah. So these troughs that come off, for example, of the Rockies, the one coming down from the Rockies actually descends south and it, it, it turns back northward. And it's sort of the trough is actually located over sort of the Gulf of Mexico, mm -hmm. where you get um, the Gulf Stream. And there's interaction there. There is, because now not only do you have the trough, so this positive vorticity, but you also have air coming off land, uh, relatively dry um, and in wintertime it would be cold mm -hmm. over the ocean which in wintertime would be warm and wet and both those things the heat and the moisture really help to fuel the storms yeah so when you get that sort of disturbance at the low level in the temperature and you start forming your your cyclone you start spinning this up you get low level convergence mm -hmm. and then the upper level gives you um, a divergence so this allows air to travel upwards. Yes. That's and this right. connects the two. So then once you get this connection between the surface and the upper level, the uh, the way the smaller scale circulations work around this act to reinforce the the initial disturbances that cause the storm. So then you can, in a best case scenario, you'd be um, just amplifying the storm, amplifying the disturbances as it travels out across the, the North Atlantic. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned the sort of dry air coming off and this moisture coming from the sea. Of course, you get laden heat release as the air moves up in the atmosphere. It, it uh, gives off laden heat and you actually that helps power the storm as well. That's right. So you, you get all sorts of smaller scale features associated with the storm, what we call mesoscale or synoptic scale features, like warm conveyor belts. So this is something that would travel. Um, it's, it's a, well, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a conveyor belt of warm, moist air that uh, sort of goes along the front and spins up with the with the storm and, again, releases a lot of latent heat up high. Yeah. Um, now, of course, a lot of your research, you've specifically focused on the North Atlantic. So what is so special about the North Atlantic storm fronts, uh, storm tracks, apart from the fact that they bring us all our rain here in Bergen? Yeah, apart from the fact that Norway, <laughs> Bergen sits right at the end of it, <laughs> perfectly positioned. Uh, so the North Atlantic storm track is kind of interesting because it is relatively strong compared to what we would think if you just look at the, the, the situation in the North Atlantic compared to the situation in the North Pacific, for example. The contrasts, these north-south temperature contrasts we talked about before, uh, tend to be much stronger in the North Pacific. The jet stream is stronger. Generally, we think of this as being a more bare clinic environment that would Yes. better produced storms or stronger storms. But the North Atlantic storm track is actually very strong given the weaker baroclinicity in the North Atlantic compared yes. to the North Pacific. It also has a very pronounced 
tilt. It, uh, as it mm. travels across the North Atlantic, it, it goes from the southwest up towards the northeast, so towards nor from the, near the Gulf of Mexico, essentially, towards Norway. So it's, a, it's very tilted. If you look at other storm tracks, they're much more what we call zonal, so they're oriented east-west. In the Pacific, for example. In the Pacific, in the, even in the southern hemisphere. Yeah. So it is quite a, a, a special storm track. Baraclinicity? Could you just define that? Baraclinicity you... tells us something about the stratification in the atmosphere. How do you describe baraclinicity? I mean, I do, in, when I teach it, I say that the, the, the pressure surfaces and the density surfaces intersect. They're not aligned. And I guess the point is that if you have a stratis, stratified atmosphere where everything is aligned, it's quite stable. You're not going to want to grow disturbances. So when you have the pressure surfaces and the density surfaces, or temperature surfaces, however you want to think about it, if they're not quite aligned, then that gives you the possibility of, of um, growing disturbances if a disturbance comes through. Is this linked to the ocean current, or is it just like other features that are hurt? That is such a good question, because I think that it's one... We know, we know the answer to it in that we know the various things that cause the tilt and the mm. strength. We know that the Rockies are important. We know that the warm Gulf Stream being there is important. We know that the the shape of North America, the East Coast kind of angles out as well uh, from the mm. Southwest to the Northeast. All of these things have been shown to be important for for creating the tilt in the, in the North Atlantic storm track. But uh, I don't think we know which of these things is most important. And you can't really separate the effect of them completely uh, of mm. the various factors. I was just thinking, like, uh, is it possible to sort of, like, tweak our climate models to investigate this? Yes. Like, yeah. So you can you can do great things with climate models. Right? You can do anything you want with a climate model, essentially. <laughs> so you can take out the mountains, yeah. or you can make the mountains higher, or you can move them, or you can make the land... Smooth. That's actually another thing I forgot to mention. Yeah. Um, the, the fact that the land is rough compared to the ocean surface. right? Okay. You can make the land smooth, just like the ocean. You can um, take away the Gulf Stream. You, know. uh. you can do all these things. And we do, this is how we know that all those factors are important for the North Atlantic yeah. storm. It just track. nothing really sticks out as the key to the key to this. It's partly that they, they we know they're all important. It's hard to, you know, the fact that the Rockies are there and they mm. put this kink in the yeah. jet stream and the jet stream comes off North America at a tilt as well, at a southwest northeast tilt, that partly uh, influences the path of the Gulf Stream. So you can't really separate these two things. So <laughs> it's a combination of these factors and the question is how much does each of them contribute and how do they balance each other? Exactly. And also the fact that if you look in state-of-the-art climate models now, the North Atlantic jet stream and storm tracks, they tend to be still a little not tilted enough, and they extend a bit too much into Europe. Mm. And as you can imagine, this this is um, it has important implications for if you're trying to do climate predictions or climate projections into the future, um, trying to assess how climate impacts will change. So, so the current generation of climate models actually does reasonably well at storm tracks, or they have this persistent bias, though, in the North Atlantic. They do well on the Pacific, don't they? Uh, there are small biases everywhere. I think it depends. If you talk yeah. to people who study in the North Pacific, they'll say, oh, they're horrible. You know, we don't get the right storm track. But I think generally, <laughs> overall, the large-scale circulation is done well by state-of-the-art climate models. 
the one one of the things that really still sticks out is the fact that the this North Atlantic storm track is it extends too far into Europe. It, mm. it generally it's not quite tilted enough. It extends too far, and it's generally too weak. That's the other thing. So in a climate model, then uh, from what I understand it, then the climate model will transport too much 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 uh, moisture into Europe, like mainland Europe. Yeah, you could think of too many storms going in there. Yeah. So maybe a little bit too much heat, a little bit too much moisture, but the storm the storm track itself is too weak in the climate models. So oh, it's right. weaker than yeah. compared. So, you know, they might go too far into Europe and maybe not enough of them come up into Norway, but mm. they're slightly weaker, so those differences might offset depending on where you're looking, which specific location you're looking. It might be okay, it might not be. There's also biases in the upper level as well, isn't there, with the jets. Yeah, so the jets same thing. They're uh, they tend to be slightly too zonal, so not tilted enough. They tend to, they tend to be a little too strong. So the jets are too strong. The storm tracks are a little bit too weak, and the um, the jets also extend a little bit more into Europe than you would, than you would see in in observational data. So, why, what is causing this bias in the models? Well, you know. This is why we getting back to the question of what makes the North Atlantic storm track so special. We're pretty sure that it's one of those factors or some combination of those factors that are not being represented well in the models, or at least not as well as we would like. We're still doing overall a pretty good job. Is it? I mean, there's quite a large number of climate models uh, now. If you look at the sort of CMIP studies, but um, are all of the models showing a similar bias or? Is there sort of two classes? Some models are too strong here or too weak there or they've got some factor they do well and another group has a factor it does different or does each model have its own quirks? Probably every model has its own quirks, but you could you could classify, um, for the North Atlantic storm track anyway, most of them have this problem that we just discussed, the not quite enough tilt, um, too strong jet, too weak a storm track. Uh, there are some that do better and that seem to have a, a little bit more, you know, a little bit more oomph in the storm track and, and everything's a little bit more tilted. Interestingly, those things tend to go together. So if you, if, you tend, if you have a storm track that's a little bit more active, it tends to also be a storm track that's a little bit more tilted. What about our own Norwegian climate model, NorSM? How does that do? It's not too bad. It's uh, it's. It looks like a lot of the other ones, <laughs> which means that, uh, but it's it's not too bad. It has a tilt to the North Atlantic storm track. Um, you wouldn't mind a little more, and uh, it extends a little bit too far into Europe, but it's not too, not too bad. <laughs> okay, so Norway is strongly affected by storm tracks and the weather it brings across to us. So the big question then, how will the storm tracks change in the future? That is the million dollar question. <laughs> That's right. Uh, if you look at the state-of-the-art climate models, the consensus is that the storm tracks, the North Atlantic storm track will shift a bit poleward in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, the consensus is generally that in the Northern Hemisphere, the storm tracks will shift a little bit poleward in, in the future. Uh, this is a pretty robust result across all the models. If you look at warming scenarios that are rather strong. So warming scenarios where by 2100, you're getting to five or six degrees warmer in the global average. Right. 
I guess the the caveat there yep. <laughs> would be that um, you just have to remember that this is happening against the background of a storm track that is extremely variable. So Stephen said earlier that the storm track sits around 45 north with a tilt, right? But if you look at where individual storms are going and, and where that snapshot, if you took a snapshot of that storm track every day, you'd find huge variability in what latitude it sits at. Yep. So it could be 15 or 20 degrees difference from one week to the next or one month to the next. So you have a very large natural variability in the location of the storm tracks. So if it's 5 to 10 degrees sort of spread in the storm track itself, it could in the future be moving north by one or two degrees of latitude. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I think at most that's what the models are saying. Yep. One, two degrees shift superimposed on 10, 15, 20 degrees of natural variability. So it is a, it's a small signal. It's, it's fairly subtle. Um, but we would expect, would we be expecting more storms or more intense storms? I mean, if we have, uh, if you have a warmer atmosphere, you could, a warmer planet, you'd expect to increase this latent heat flux. So you'd expect to increase that sort of energy coming into storms. But some reports have actually said that uh, you'd expect less storms, but they'll be more intense. So how does that all reconcile? I think that is probably the most reasonable answer we have at the moment. The, the fact that, th that the air is becoming warmer and thus can hold more moisture, that's, that's something we have a lot of certainty about, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it's true that that should, that's more fuel for the storms, that should provide much stronger storms. It should produce much stronger storms um, in the future. At the same time, we're, uh, we're weakening that contrast between the pole and the tropics mm. that we talked about earlier. So the Arctic is warming faster than the rest of the globe, this uh, issue of Arctic amplification that I think everyone's heard of. Yeah. Mm. So we're losing a lot of sea ice, warming faster. We're reducing the contrast. That means we're reducing the bare clinicity. So you might think that you'd have less of a tendency to create storms, generate storms, um, grow storms. This uh, hot, cold, uh, warm air, cold air, difference we were talking about you decrease the strength of that so suddenly a small disturbance or kink is less likely to actually generate a storm exactly mm. yeah so i think it's not unreasonable to uh, expect fewer storms but that the ones we have will be stronger mm. more intense some of your recent work has been working with the so-called happy simulations um, that's h-a-p-p-i uh, this is half a degree of additional warming, uh, prognosis, and projected impacts. So tell us about the HAPI simulations. What do they show? What are the results? So the, yeah, the HAPI simulations were run in support of the 1.5 degree report, the special IPCC report that came out after the Paris Agreement. Yep. Um, and the idea was to say, okay, is there, can we really see a difference between 1.5 degrees and two degrees of warming? Because the idea was we should try to limit our warming to well under two degrees. And what are we going to gain by that? Mm. We realized we didn't really have the the simulations, the experiments to to address this question. So what Happy had to do was to run use many different models and run these 1.5 and 2 degree scenarios. The difference was that we talked about the large natural variability of the storm tracks and the fact that we're looking for small shifts in, in something that has a system that has large natural variability. The way to try to get around that is to run 
many, many experiments, the same experiment over and over and over again. So the happy ensemble includes um, at least a hundred experiments for each of the, each model had to run at least a hundred experiments of the present day climate, the 1.5 degree and the two degree. Yeah. Um, some models ran as many as 500. Wow. And hopefully averaging over all of this, you get statistically robust signals. So what were the major findings? What is the difference between one and a half and two degrees in terms of storm tracks? For the storm tracks, for the mid-latitudes in general, it's really hard to detect a difference. So those would be uh, fairly similar scenarios for the mid-latitudes. Yeah. There are regions where differences did emerge. Um, for example, over the Mediterranean. So yes. the Mediterranean has a storm track as well. It's a slightly different type of storm track. But yes. it... It is an important one because that whole area around the Mediterranean, which is semi-arid, they mm. really depend on their winter precipitation. So most of their rainfall comes in winter. If they don't, if they get one dry winter or several dry winters in a row, it can it can have devastating impacts on on those areas. So um, that is one region where between 1.5 to 2 degrees, you do start to see a change there. You see a drying of that region actually. So that storm yeah. track weakens. Mm. Over the um, over that half a degree of warming. So in that region, you'd actually see their wintertime precipitation to sort of just decreasing the amount of rain and moisture they get in that arid region will actually just change between one on one point five and two degrees. Yes. So uh, we from those simulations, we we see a statistically significant change from one point five to two degrees. And if you look at the mean changes in precipitation. It, it's not that impressive, right? Especially since that region doesn't have a lot of rainfall anyway. Yes. I think where we really started to see a difference was if you looked at the distribution um, yes. of precipitation. Then you could start to see that uh, the chances of getting a dry decade, so a whole decade where you would have dry conditions, mm. which is much worse than a single dry yes. year, right? Um, that that was starting to increase in the two degree scenario, whereas there wasn't much change from the present day to the one point five. And of course, all of these changes you see them more pronounced. We always think of them in terms of a distribution, and you think about a change of one point five in the mean temperature, but uh, the distribution tails are even more important. The extremes um, with this sort of two degree warming, what you might see today as a, a average amount of precipitation might become quite a rare event or quite a dry year relatively in the future, or vice versa. Yeah, that's right. So for Norway, actually, I said we didn't see huge changes in the mid-latitude storm tracks and the mid-latitude jets, and that's true. But it's still a warmer, wetter world, so you you will see more precipitation. Norway will get wetter. Bergen will get wetter, if you can believe that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so what we see as a normal amount of precipitation today in a two-degree world would start to become a pretty dry condition. And the other side of that is, of course, that what we'd see as an extremely bad winter storm might start being... Normal. Yeah. Ouch. <laughs> okay. We are reaching the end of today's podcast. Um, there's a great deal of understanding about storms and storm tracks from a century and a half of research already done, but it seems there's still a lot of fine details and subtleties that need to be understood, especially if we want to answer questions reliably about future changes in storm tracks. Camille, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much. 
We've been talking with Professor Camille Lee about storms and storm tracks. We hope you enjoyed the show and we'll tune in again next time. From myself, Stephen Alton, and my colleague, Ingil Pilskog, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. You have now been listening to a podcast from the Bjerknes Center for Climate Research. The Bjerknes Center is a partnership between the University of Bergen, Norwegian Research Center NORS, the Nansen Environmental and Remote Sensing Center, and the Institute of Marines Research. The music is by Lee Rosevere, Arcade Montage, under Creative Commons BY 3.0. The podcast is edited by me, Inga Pilsku, Associated Professor at the Western University of Applied Sciences.